You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Ministry staff, how's that? Better? Good. Part of our ministry staff here at South Bay Church. And if you're a first-time guest, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, If this is your first time joining us, uh, please do feel free to stop by our guest services station right there in the foyer. If you didn't do that on the way in, we do have a small gift for you if you're a first-time guest. And we'd love to get you connected to our, to our life here within South Bay Church. We have a lot of family activities, a lot of great small groups that we have going on, so we'd love to get you connected. Uh, we'd also like to invite all of you to our monthly lunch that we'll be having immediately after service today uh, at the illustrious Miracosta Cafeteria. Uh, and I hear that today is a chili cook-off, and there is plenty of chili flowing for everyone. So uh, please join us. <clears throat> and um, also just a quick reminder, we have our midweeks that are starting uh, this coming Tuesday for the men at 7.30 at the SDA building. And the women will be meeting on Wednesday at 7.30 a.m. in the month of March. So uh, there's a lot going on in the church. I'm not going to go into all the details, but go on to the South Bay Church app on the calendar section, and you'll see everything laid out there of what's going on in the church. And today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled The Verse After the Verse. And in this series, we're taking a closer look at some of the most commonly cited, the most commonly used scriptures today. And we're challenging our understanding of those verses. Uh, Because sometimes these verses are misunderstood or they're even misapplied. And so we can learn a lot about these scriptures by looking at the context in which they were written. And sometimes you have to look at the verse after the verse, so to speak, to really get the true idea of what was going on in that scripture. Hence the name of the series, the verse after the verse. And so far in the series, Brian took a close look at Jeremiah 29, a beloved scripture by many of us, where God promises the Israelites that he knows the plans he has for them, has for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And then last week, Steve Marici talked about the 23rd Psalm, where uh, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And we got a lot of great information about what shepherds are all about and sheep. And if you missed any of those, you can go on to the South Bay Church app again, and there's a section out there for Uh, the past sermon series, you can listen to those. And you can also, on the app, uh, under the notes section, find the notes for today's sermon if you want to follow along. And today we're going to be drilling into another very popular Bible verse from the New Testament this time. And it's a scripture that's often read at wedding ceremonies. I'm sure you all could probably quote it, or or certainly you're familiar with it. Uh, It's on social media, it's on wall hangings, it's on coffee mugs, it's everywhere. And it comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church in the 13th chapter. So you're going to hear that scripture read for you right here. If I speak the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clinging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, but I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. 
love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, does not keep a record of wrong, finds no joy in unrighteousness, or rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So many scholars really rank that scripture that you just heard as, as some of the most beautiful prose ever written in all of world literature. I mean, it, for me, it is by far the most eloquent and the most thorough definition of love that, that I've ever read personally. And I think the verse has really challenged my understanding of what love is all about. And I think that scripture really stands in stark contrast to what our world would tell you love is today, right? Uh, the, the, the world around us would have us believe that love is an intense feeling. And, and that love is something that we fall into. Uh, that love is something that you see at first sight. But, but when I read this scripture, you know, I understand from God's perspective that, that love is so much more than a feeling. Uh, it, love is a way that you live. Love is a decision. And, and real love does not come easily. It requires sacrifice. And like so many verses in the Bible, you know, you can, you can read this, you can read 1 Corinthians 13 and say, wow, that's, that's quaint. What an old-fashioned idea. Uh, but it's just an ideal. You know, it, it's just an impossible standard for anyone to really live up to. And I believe it's easy to excuse yourself from, from really loving the people around you simply because it's hard. And it requires sacrifice. You know, I'm a father of two amazing boys. Uh, Andy and Ethan, ages um, 13 and 8. And my 8-year-old, Ethan, well, both of them, but my 8-year-old <laughs> this week reminded me that sometimes you see the purest form of love in children. Um, you know, if you know Ethan, you know Ethan is a very active kid. Uh, his favorite uh, subjects at school are P.E. and recess, seriously. I mean, he loves to play football. He loves to play football with his friends. Every day, he, the first thing he tells me when I take him up at school is like, Dad, you've got to hear what happened in the game today. And he has this friend, Philip, who plays football with him. And, and Philip is a great kid. At, he had an accident a while back, and Philip now has to wear, for a while, he has to wear leg braces on his, on his legs. And so he cannot play football. And so Ethan, I think, really demonstrated incredible love for Philip. And totally un he wasn't asked to do this, but Ethan wanted to sacrifice his recesses so that he could stay in the office with Philip and play board games with him since he couldn't play football. And I said, Ethan, I am so proud of you. Because you know what? You're loving Philip the way that Jesus would love Philip. And I know it's a sacrifice for you to give up football. But again, my kids can call me higher and show how, how short I fall on, 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 on true love. And they prove that love is not just an ideal. You can live in love. But, but to understand the context, you know, of what Paul's really saying in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, I think, I think you have to really study what was going on there in Corinth. And, you know, as you start getting into it, you realize that this verse that you just heard is so much more than something to be read at weddings. You know, and I believe that there's much for us to take away in our modern lives from what Paul was teaching these, these Corinthian Christians 2,000 years ago. 
So over the next 30 minutes or so, I want to address uh, a couple of questions. First of all, why did Paul write this? What was going on? What was the context in which he wrote this to help us understand uh, the deeper meaning behind it? But then more importantly, what does this mean for us today? And how do we really apply the scripture today? And then I'll wrap it up by giving us a specific Bible challenge for the coming week. So let's go ahead and pray as we get started. God, uh, we are grateful that you give us such a beautiful, such an eloquent definition of love. And God, I just pray that today as we study a very familiar scripture that you bring it to life for us in a new way. God, that you help us, the Holy Spirit would speak to us all and really help us to know what it is that you want from us from a love perspective. God, and that we go away strengthened, we go away encouraged, we go away challenged uh, to to really live in love. Uh, We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you may remember, if you were here last summer, we spent quite a bit of time in the verse of, uh, excuse me, the book of First Corinthians, uh, and we had a ser- sermon series last summer called Hashtag Wisdom. Some of you may remember that. And if you were here for that series, you'll remember that, that we, we talked quite a bit about what Corinth, Greece was like, this first century city of Corinth when the Apostle Paul was there. And we saw that Corinth was indeed a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, an analogy would be if you took Los Angeles and New York and Las Vegas and the elements of those three cities and combined them into one. That's sort of what Corinth would have been like. Very cosmopolitan. And in preparation for the sermon today, I've been studying more about ancient Corinth. And and it really has just struck me how much we really can learn from what was going on there, uh, even though it was a long time ago. And I think to understand, again, why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13... You know, I I just want to drill down into the cultural context of what was going on and also what was going on inside the young church there. So this is an artist's depiction of what Corinth probably looked like in the first century. But it was a it was a Roman colony that was established in the year 44 B.C. by Julius Caesar. And, And you may remember that Corinth had this very strategic location on an isthmus of land between two oceans, and it was on two major trade routes. And so it became a major seaport. It became a major commercial center. And, and in fact, by the time Paul came on the scene, Corinth was one of the wealthiest cities uh, in the Roman Empire. And so since Corinth was this center of commerce, people moved into Corinth from all over the Roman Empire. And when they moved in, they brought with them uh, many different customs and many different religions. And so Corinth was a very diverse city. It was also a very religious city. Uh, Modern archaeologists have uncovered like 26 different sacred places that were dedicated to different deities. And there was this huge temple um, on this hill overlooking Corinth, which was sort of dominating the landscape. There was this hill called the Acrocorinth, and on top of that hill was this temple of the goddess Aphrodite. That was one of the main idols that they worshipped, and Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty and love. And you can see uh, from some of the writing that happened in there during that period what was really going on in this temple and around this temple. The first century Greek geographer Strabo wrote, uh, The temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it acquired more than a thousand prostitutes, donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. The ship captains would spend fortunes there, And so the proverb says, the voyage to Corinth isn't just for any man. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what was going on. These temple prostitutes were slaves that that were purchased by wealthy Greeks and donated to the service of this goddess. And 
And so Corinth had become synonymous all over the Roman Empire for sexual promiscuity. And in fact, sexual morality was not culturally or religiously taboo at all. It was just considered a normal part of life in Corinth. And so you had that going on. There was also this wide gap between the rich and the poor in Corinth. And the city had a lot of newly rich merchants who loved to flaunt their material wealth. And they were known to do these public acts of philanthropy that really weren't about doing something nice for the populace. It was about them getting their names in bronze letters and getting the glory that came along with those acts of philanthropy. And then the Greek culture also placed great emphasis on wisdom and knowledge. And so the Corinthians took great pride in their intellectual knowledge. And gaining knowledge was considered a way to gain respect. And with all that emphasis on knowledge, Corinth became a very divided city because you had all these different factions of people that would follow different teachers or different philosophers and they would, they would fight with one another. They'd con- there was constant conflict, constant tension between these different factions. So, so basically, you just characterize Corinth as this city that was full of idol worship, full of factions, full of sexual immorality, full of pride, and with a ton of socioeconomic inequality, including slavery. Uh, so again, there's some common not commonalities with our culture today there. But it's in that context that Paul introduced the gospel of Jesus in around 52 A.D. And Paul, you can read in Acts 18 how Paul spent a considerable time in, in, in Corinth. He spent about 18 months there, and the early church grew very quickly. And so not surprisingly, the demographics of the early Corinthian church looked very much like the society around them. You know, you had most of the Corinthian Christians coming from a pagan background, and many of them were of a low socioeconomic status. In fact, a lot of them were slaves. But there is evidence that there were some of the Christians that were people of means. Uh, in fact, one of the, one of the uh, leading uh, community members that was baptized was a Jewish synagogue leader who became a disciple of Jesus. But, but after the 18 months was up, Paul continued on his missionary journeys. He left Corinth, and he started to receive bad reports after, about what was going on after he had left Corinth and what was going on in that young church he planted. And the, and the Corinthian Christians were unfortunately bringing in the sinful city, uh, sinful culture of the city into the church. And that's what prompted Paul to write this first letter to the Corinthians. And in much of 1 Corinthians, Paul strongly rebukes these Christians in Corinth for their sinful lifestyle. Uh, there were a lot of divisions and factions inside the church. You know, a lot of different little groupies were forming around different teachers like Paul and Barnabas and Apollos. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, divisions going on. And, and then a lot of the Christians were struggling with leaving behind sexual immorality. So Paul had to literally teach the Corinthian Christians that it's not correct, it's not right to unite your body with a prostitute. And he really went after even a very heinous, incestuous relationship that the church was, was, was tolerating. And then you saw the wealthy Corinthian Christians that were really bringing their, their conceit and their elitism into the church. And the wealthy Christians were trying to segregate themselves from the poor Christians, even during the Lord's Supper. And then Paul had to address a number of other sins, like, like lawsuits. They were taking each other to court, uh, food sacrifice to idols, inappropriate behavior during the Lord's Supper, and so on. But again, if you've read 1 Corinthians, that's probably pretty familiar ground for you, or if you're with us in past uh, you know, sermon series. But here's something that you may not have realized. I didn't until I, I studied it. But even though the Corinthian Christians were living a very sinful lifestyle, they ironically took great pride in how spiritual and how wise they were. So, so, so they even thought of themselves as more spiritual than the Apostle Paul himself. So, so you know, it, it was crazy. They, they took great pride in these spiritual gifts 
especially this gift of speaking in tongues. And some commentators believe that when Paul wrote about speaking in the tongues of angels, that he was not just being poetic. It's likely that the Corinthians really believed that they could speak like angels. And the pagan religions and even ancient Judaism had this, this practice of ecstatic utterances or speaking in divine languages. So it's not surprising that the young Christians here in Corinth were occupied with or preoccupied with speaking in tongues. So, so the Corinthians believed that their spiritual gifts were proof of their superior wisdom and their enlightenment. And that led to great arrogance and great pride among the Corinthians. That was unfounded. And they also felt that, that, that when someone suffered, that was evidence of a lesser spirituality somehow. And that's why the Corinthians were looking down on Paul for his weaknesses and his suffering. And they completely misunderstood the cross. They had little use for a suffering Messiah. So in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul really goes after the arrogance of the Corinthians with what I might call cutting sarcasm. And it's a really crazy, it starts in 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. So, so the Corinthians... You know, they, they thought they were spiritually rich when in fact they were spiritually impoverished. And I found it rather shocking that a church with so much sin and worldliness actually viewed themselves as spiritually superior. But Paul certainly had his work cut out for him. And, you know, he, he likened the Corinthians to like spiritual babies that were so worldly that they couldn't yet handle solid spiritual food. He had to go back to the basics with them and really reestablish the foundation of Jesus crucified and Jesus resurrected. And Paul knew that there was one foundational principle that the Corinthians had not yet grasped. And that was, you know, the concept of agape. You know, the, the, the Corinthians understood eros, which was the Greek word for erotic love. They got that. They understood that from the world around them. But they didn't understand agape, which was the Greek word for an entirely new concept of self-sacrificial love that Jesus put forward. In fact, agape wasn't even really used in the Greek language until Christianity came along. So, so it's easy to understand that, you know, this gives us some context of why Paul was starting to write a lot about love in this book of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians needed to understand that religious activity without love is totally useless. They could speak in the tongues of angels, you know, but without love... They were nothing more than a clanging symbol. And even if you speak like an angel, it's meaningless if you're divisive and you're envious. You can obtain all the spiritual wisdom and knowledge, but it's nothing without love. I mean, who cares if you know the deeper truths, if you're also sexually immoral and you're divisive and you're arrogant? You could literally die in the Roman arena for Jesus. But if you aren't doing it in love, there's nothing at all to be gained. 
You can be the most generous philanthropist. You can give tons of money to the poor. But all you're giving is worthless if you look down on other people and you're prideful and you're doing it just to make yourself look good. And so we begin to see that 1 Corinthians 13 is much more than a scripture to be read to newlyweds. I mean, Paul wrote this to Christians who were seriously deluded about their own wisdom and their own spirituality. And it was actually written to save this young church from empty religion. Because Paul, as he so passionately asserts, said that Christianity without love has no value whatsoever. So what does all that mean for us 2,000 years later? I mean, how do we apply this? Well, first of all, I think just like in Corinth, we can bring today's culture into the church. And we don't do it on purpose, but it's subtle, but it happens. And we have a lot of strong cultural values uh, that creep into modern Western Christianity. But in the interest of time, I'll just mention one. I think one of our primary cultural narratives today is that the self is supreme. It's this pervasive worldview that says, you know what, my personal happiness and my satisfaction and my comfort are of supreme importance. And I have a right to do whatever will make me happy and comfortable. But how does that worship of self come into the church? Well, we have a lot of people here. We have people that are new to Christianity, that are just checking this out. They just want to learn more. We have people that have been disciples for many years. But, but honestly, ask yourself if you've ever said or if you've ever heard something like this. You know, as long as I find God my own way, it's all good. You find him your way, I'm going to find him my way. I'm on my journey, you're on your journey. Okay. I'm shopping around for a church that's right for me. I like that church because I get fed, fed spiritually. I like that pastor. I participate in the church activities that fit into my schedule. I'll show up when it's convenient for me. I hear statements like that all the time. And what's the common denominator here? It's me, myself, and I. Okay? It's not love. A church full of self-consumed people is not a loving church. And Paul warned that many people can have a form of godliness, but deny its power. There's much empty Christianity out there today that has no power in it. And that's because people can have an outward form of godliness in all their religious activities, but inwardly, they're missing the most crucial ingredient, which is love. And I believe that the absence of true love is what repels many people from Christianity today. It's what leads people to say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I hate organized religion. In other words, they may believe in God, but they don't believe in the church. Because the churches they've seen are loveless, and they're powerless. And I'll paraphrase G.K. Chesterton when he said, by far the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. So do you think that you're exempt from empty religion? Do you think you are? I mean, maybe you delight in your time of worship. I mean, your hands are in the air as the incredible music's playing. Maybe you crave the spiritual food. You want to hear the deeper teaching. You want the, the preaching from the Bible. 
Maybe you feel very sacrificial in what you give to the church. And you're here sacrificing your time this morning. Maybe you take comfort that you have all the right doctrine. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are all good things. But my friends, you can have the most inspiring worship. And you can have great teaching. And you can have all the right doctrine. You can quote the Bible from memory. You can have all those things down and still be missing the most important thing. And that's what Paul was telling the Corinthians, that religion without love is worthless. And love always requires sacrifice. And we have so many amazing examples of love in South Bay Church. I, I thought about mentioning something. I couldn't even begin because there's just so, it's everywhere. You guys love one another. I see it. We have people that lay down their lives. But I, even so, I still think it's important to do an honest self-assessment. And I'll just ask a few questions, and if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, don't put it on, okay? But do you have the love to return phone calls or emails from another church member or a church leader that reaches out to you? Do you have the love to participate in church activities that are meant to help you grow? Like our youth ministry nights, if you're a parent. Like our pure and simple purity workshop at the Paramount building a few weeks ago. Like your small group midweek meetings. I mean, do you have the love to regularly serve the poor? Do you have the love to be in your seats ready to worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. so that our singers aren't singing into an empty auditorium? Do you have the love to look around you during worship service and go introduce yourself to someone you don't know? A first-time guest that might be sitting all by themselves? Are you totally oblivious to that? Do you have the love to tell other people what Jesus has done for you? And if you're not doing those things, you know, it says something. It says something about where your heart is. But on the other hand, I was talking to my wife, Mia, about this. On the other hand, you can be doing all of those things, and your heart can still be in the wrong place. You can go through all the motions, but still not really love all the people around you. And folks, this may feel uncomfortable, but we have to be honest with ourselves. The average member of South Bay Church has been a Christian for 18 years. One-eighth. That is a long time, folks. Has your heart really become more loving with time? Or has the routine of this Christian life that we live? Has it numbed your heart over time? Because Jesus warned that the increase of wickedness, because of that, the love of most will grow cold. Do you believe him on that? Sin is deceitful, and, and we must be very careful that we're not deceived into believing that our religious activity and our church affiliation and our doctrine and our beliefs are what make us right before God. Salvation does not come from association with the right group. Of course you have to have the right beliefs. But when you study the Bible, one of the first things you learn is that your beliefs and your doctrine have to match up with your life. They need to align. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not living in love, it's not just you that you're affecting. <laughs> your hypocrisy, believe me, your hypocrisy may be quite evident to those around you those who are watching you. And you may be repelling them from Christianity rather than attracting them to it. 
And that's why Paul said you have to watch your life and doctrine closely because you'll save yourself and who? Your hearers, those watching you. So if you feel like you're falling short in love, what do you do? What do you do if you're not as loving as you need to be? Do you just try harder? I'm going to love harder! You know, the unfortunate reality is that none of us on our own can truly love the way 1 Corinthians 13 describes it. I mean, patience. Okay, I blew that in the first 30 minutes of my day. Right? Because we're sinful. We miss the mark. And just trying to love is not... Just trying harder isn't going to work. At least for the long term, it's not going to work. And personally, I know I'm a failure when it comes to loving others. I mean, when I do an honest self-assessment, I know that I have floundered in so many of my relationships with you. I know I've let some of you down. I, I, know, that I know my tendency is when I get hurt, I retreat. And I don't love people enough to work through the conflict to, to reconcile the relationship. I'll just avoid people. And I also get consumed with my life and my struggles. And I don't feel like a loyal friend. And I feel hopeless. So many times I feel hopeless that I can change. I've just failed too many times. But I do believe that, that recognizing your own failure to love is where real repentance begins. And herein lies the key. To truly love others, you must receive a love like no other. To truly love others, you must receive a love unlike no other. You know, we have a Heavenly Father who knows. He knows that we fail miserably at true love. And so his son says, okay, let me personally show you the most excellent way. And what Jesus says, he says, you're so unloving. You've hurt many people. You worship idols. You're prideful. You don't even know how evil your heart is. But I am patient with you. I don't want you to perish in your sin. And you will never, Jesus says, you'll never ever be able to come into my presence on your own. Because I'm holy. I can't be in the presence of sin. And there's such a high price that has to be paid for all that you've done. But I am kind to you. I'm willing to pay the high price for you. And love always requires sacrifice. And Jesus says, I am God. You know, I'm one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I've been with them from the beginning of time. And in that trinity, we have this amazing heavenly unity and joy that you'll never begin to fathom as a mere mortal. But I'm willing to leave that privileged place. And I will humble myself to become a man. And I will die as a criminal in your place. Because I am not proud. I am not self-seeking. And Jesus says the punishment for your sin is horrendous. In fact, it's so painful, you can't even begin to understand it as you sit in your comfortable auditorium chair this morning. The executioners will come for me, not for you. And I'll be nearly flogged to death for you. I will be spit on for you. I will take the accusations and the scorn for you. I'll be nailed up and left hanging on a cross for hours for you. And when that's all over, what hurts the most is that my Father, who I've been with from the beginning of time, will abandon me because of you. But make no mistake, I could call down a huge army of angels and I could put an end to this immediately. But I am not easily angered. 
I will not be provoked. And Jesus says, I'm doing all this so that you can be forgiven. So that you can come back into the presence of my Father. And if you accept my gift and you make me your Lord and you take my yoke upon you and you're baptized in my name, I will keep no record of your wrongs on the day that you stand before me. Because for you, my brother, for you, my sister, I will bear all things. I will endure all things. I'll never stop hoping that you will truly understand the depth of my love for you. I will never stop believing in you. I will never stop rejoicing when you choose to walk away from sin and take a stand for the truth. Folks, you can see Jesus is the perfect, the perfect example of 1 Corinthians 13 love. And he doesn't just love the whole world. He loves you. He loves you. Sitting there today, he loves you. Do you believe that? Have you made this personal? And if you believe it, you have to respond to it. Such a love demands a response. And if you want to know more about Jesus and, and, and what response he wants from you, then please study the Bible with us. Jesus has a lot to say about what it means to be his follower, his disciple. Don't leave it to chance that you know. We can show you in the scriptures exactly what Jesus wants and he offers you. And there's no shortcut to, 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 to studying what the Bible has to say. But in short, the Bible says that Jesus wants you to, to come follow him, to set your life aside and to follow him alone because you know, living for Christ, living in love, it's not going to come from trying harder. It only comes from embracing and marveling and rejoicing in what Jesus has done for you. And in response to his love, you can truly love. As I think about what Jesus has done inside of me, it's nothing short of miraculous. You know, I'm not a loving man by nature. But it's only by the love of God that, that I have a wife who loves me. That, I, that I'm the loving father of two boys. That, that I have so many friends in this church that, that I love, that love me, that would never be my friends if it weren't for Jesus. We have nothing in common from a worldly perspective. But because we, you know, in God's perspective, we have everything in common. Because we have the love of Jesus in common. So, as I close out, I want to give you a Bible challenge for the coming week. And it's very simply to read John chapter 21. In John 21, we see that the resurrected Jesus reinstates Peter after Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter knew at this point, he had gone back fishing. He knew he had failed to love. He had failed everyone around him. But there's a lot we can learn about love from Peter's interaction with Jesus in John 21. When you finally recognize that your own performance is not going to save you, and when you're finally broken... It's then that you can hear the voice of the Savior. And when Peter was finally broken, it's then that Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And as Peter reaffirmed his love for Jesus, Jesus' direction was to feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. And Steve Ricci talked to us last week about how difficult sheep are, right? <laughs> They are hard creatures to love. But the measure of, of 
you know, whether Jesus, whether you love Jesus, I guess it's shown by your willingness to feed his lambs. Even though they are annoying and stupid at times, he still calls you to feed them. So, as you read John 21 this week, put yourself in Peter's shoes. And make this personal. Jesus asks you, do you love me? Then sacrifice some of your time to spend time with other Christians. Jesus asks you, do you love me? Then use your God-given resources and talents to strengthen the church, just not on your own self. You know, Jesus asks, do you love me? Then share with someone how much he's done for you. And meditate on what Jesus is saying to you and what it really means to feed his lambs. But whatever you do, please don't take comfort in your religion. (laughs) Instead, set your heart on how much Jesus loves you. And let his love inspire you to be patient and kind and humble and selfless and to feed his lambs. And on that great day when you stand before him, your heart will rejoice. Not because you've followed all the rules, not because you've lived a perfect life. But instead you're going to rejoice that he, his love has transformed you into a totally new creation. And you'll rejoice that Jesus will go on loving you for all eternity. Because true love, as we heard, never fails. It never ends. We're going to transition to a time in our service when we take communion together. And this is a time when we collectively remember the body of Jesus, which was given for us, and the blood, which represents the new covenant. So let's go ahead and pray together as we prepare to take communion. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that in your Son, Jesus, we we have the perfect example of love. Jesus loved us all the way to the cross. He died a horrible death so so that we can have an incredible life. And we know that we fall short of true love, God. We, we just take the time to examine ourselves this morning, where we fall short. And as we take the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, just let us remember the consequences of our sins. As we take the juice, which represents his blood, let, let's remember that we have the new hope of the new covenant because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We have new hope that we can be truly forgiven. We have faith that we'll be able to Come back into your presence. Faith, hope, and love, God. We read, that's what really matters. But what matters the most is love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 